Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Roasting the Rich. I'm your host, Amber, and this is a true crime podcast where we generally talk about white-collar true crimes, things like that, but today's episode is a little bit different because it's part two of my Supreme Court Justice series where I'm going to be covering different Supreme Court justices that voted to overturn Roe versus Wade, give you some more background information about them. Before we get into all that, how are you guys doing? How's everyone's lives been? Um, I have had the worst insomnia for the past like two weeks. I just haven't been able to fall asleep. When I do fall asleep, I just wake up like every hour and just toss and turn. And it's just, it's just the absolute worst. My heart goes out to anybody who's also ever experienced insomnia. I don't know. I've never, I've never really experienced it. And I am especially surprised because it's getting darker up here in Alaska. So if anything, you think that I would be able to sleep more because it's dark earlier and it's darker like later in the day but if anybody has any like tips or tricks or anything like it's gotten so bad that I made a doctor appointment about it so hopefully by the next time I record things will be better but I've been up since like five in the morning but I'm getting a lot done today so you know I guess there is a bright side to it (laughs) um and then also before we get started into the episode I wanted to thank you guys all for your support last time was a big deal for me because we made it past episode 10 and I'm not in a place where where I'm able to do like a Patreon situation where I can offer extra content or bonus content or anything like that. Not right now, but I did sign up for Buy Me a Coffee, which is like an easy way that you can support me financially. Thank you. And um, basically just go to the website, buymeacoffee.com slash roasting, and you can choose to buy me a coffee. I think it's like $5. You can choose if you want to donate more than that or anything, but it would just really mean a lot to me and it would really help me out. I work really hard on this podcast and at the end of the day, I'm just excited to put out a product that I'm happy with and that I'm proud of. Um, But just, you know, wink, wink. If you guys want to support me again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash roasting. And without further ado, now we're going to get into the actual episode about the Supreme Court justices. So today we're talking about Amy Coney Barrett. And it's, this is a pretty interesting episode. I didn't know a lot about Amy and I found out like really weird information. Like to me, basically she's in a cult and she grew up in a cult. And we're going to talk about that in a bit, but let's start off real quick with a rundown of Amy's net worth. So last time I talked about how difficult it is to accurately estimate the judge's net worth because of the range reporting system and the financial disclosure forms. And Amy is a great example of this. According to CaliforniaKnowledge.com, which I mean, I don't know how accurate that <laughs> this website actually is, but Amy's net, according to them, Amy's net worth is around $20 million. And this comes from her salary of around a quarter million dollars, investments totaling $4 million, assets of $7 million, in addition to her cars and houses. Also, according to this site, Amy recently purchased a Mercedes Benz G Class for $170,000, which Yikes. Can you imagine being able to uh, like afford that or spend that much money? I mean, that's basically a house, you know, or like half of a house in today's economy. I don't know. But she also owns an $80,000 BMW, an Audi, a Volvo, and a Tesla Model X, according to 
this website. She owns a $2 million house in San Diego, a $1 million penthouse in Nashville, and a $2 million house in Houston. CaliforniaKnowledge.com says that her 2021 income was around $910,000. And her 2021 financial disclosure form, like the one that she has to submit as part of her duties as a Supreme Court justice, pretty much seconds this. Like, according to the disclosure, she made $425,000 in book royalties from Javelin Group, which is a literary agent. And in addition to that, like by the time you add up her salary of a quarter million dollars, travel allowances, and teaching salaries that she gets from different universities, I think that $900,000 sounds pretty reasonable, which I think we can all agree is a lot of money. (laughs) But back to her like whole net worth, according to her financial disclosure reports at the time of her nomination, like so maybe like a few years ago, her personal residence is only worth around $500,000, but the CaliforniaKnowledge.com thing estimates that her houses are like, she has multiple houses and they they're millions of dollars. So, and just to be fair, most of the other reports I saw of her net worth were only around 2.24 million. So, like I said, there's like a huge range. How do you jump from $20 million to $2 million? I didn't really see anything else about the different assets that she held. Like the California Knowledge has all of her cars and houses, but I mean, maybe they're in her husband's name or like joint accounts. Who knows? But like I said, it's a huge range, pretty difficult to pin down exactly who makes how much money. But moving on, Amy Coney Barrett was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and she's the oldest of seven children. Her father, Mike, was an attorney for Shell Oil, and her mother, Linda, was a French teacher. Amy attended St. Catherine of Siena for elementary school and went on to St. Mary's Dominican High School, both private Catholic schools. She attended Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, which is also a private school affiliated with the Presbyterian Church. She graduated magna cum laude and then attended Notre Dame Law School on a full tuition scholarship. She was an executive editor of the Notre Dame Law Review and graduated in 1997, ranked first in her class. So she's obviously a very intelligent, accomplished woman, just right out of college. She clerked for a few years after law school and then spent a couple years working at a boutique law firm before returning to Notre Dame as an assistant professor of law in 2002. As a professor, she became known as an expert on federal courts, constitutional law, and statutory interpretation, and she received the Distinguished Professor of the Year Award three times. So again, very intelligent, accomplished professional. During this time, she also gained recognition as a staunchly conservative Catholic. In 2012, she signed a statement criticizing Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act for its contraceptive mandate. This wasn't her only issue with Obamacare, to be fair. Like, she also criticized the penalty for not having health insurance. Like, I guess what made... Obamacare constitutional from what I how I understood it was that if you don't have health insurance they penalize you and like and charge you and the way that it's constitutional is that they call that penalty a tax it's like the federal right to be able to tax the public. I don't know, something like that. So she had an issue with that, saying that it wasn't constitutional to call the penalty a tax, but she also was strongly against the Affordable Care Act for ensuring access to contraceptives. While teaching at Notre Dame, she was part of Faculty for Life, which is a pro-choice group for faculty members, obviously. And in 2015, Amy signed a letter along with 1,300 other women to Synod Fathers, which I guess are like a group of bishops that are high up in the hierarchy of the church. This is way out of my ballpark, so, you know, bear with me. (laughs) 
In the letter, the women expressed their support of the Pope and the church's teachings on, quote, the dignity of the human person and the value of human life from conception to natural death, on the meaning of human sexuality, the significance of sexual difference, and the complementarity of men and women, on openness to life and the gift of motherhood, and on marriage and family founded on the indissoluble commitment of a man and a woman. So, you know, this is an example of where she got her reputation as a conservative Catholic, and I don't think the reputation is undeserved. Amy was working as a law professor at Notre Dame when Donald Trump nominated her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in 2017. And the Seventh Circuit is essentially the court's one level down from the Supreme Court. During the hearings, she was questioned about a law review article that she co-wrote in 1998, which argued that Catholic judges should, in some cases, recuse themselves from death penalty cases due to their moral objections to the death penalty. When asked to discuss how she viewed the issue of faith versus fulfilling the responsibility as a judge in light of this 1998 article that she wrote, Barrett said that she had participated in many death penalty appeals while serving as a law clerk. She said, quote, my personal church affiliation or my religious belief would not not bear on the discharge of my duties as a judge. And, quote, it is never appropriate for a judge to impose that judge's personal convictions, whether they arise from faith or anywhere else, on the law. She then argued that the article was written in her third year of law school and that her part in the collaboration was very minor, which I think is fair. Like, I can't even remember the papers that I wrote in college, and that was only, like, five years ago. So, and I think it's natural for people's views to shift over 20 years. So, I was going to say that we should give her the benefit of the doubt in this instance, but we all know how this turns out. So, I, okay. Um, Anyway, the hearing made Amy popular with religious conservatives, and the Democrats' questioning of Amy's religious beliefs were criticized by some as an unconstitutional religious test for office. Lambda Legal penned an open letter with 26 other LGBTQ plus groups to oppose Amy's nomination. In their opinion, Amy's views on civil rights issues are fundamentally at odds with the notion that LGBT people are entitled to equality, liberty, justice, and dignity under law. They reference an article that Amy wrote in 2017, so like really recently before her nomination, (laughs) titled Congressional Originalism, which is a concept that I might have mentioned in the last Supreme Court episode. I can't remember, but it's the idea that the Constitution should be interpreted the way it would have been interpreted at the time it was written. And in the article, Amy states that, quote, adherence to originalism arguably requires, for example, the dismantling of the administrative state, the invalidation of paper money, and the reversal of Brown versus Board of Education. In the same article, she describes super presidents as decisions that no serious person would propose to undo, even if they are wrong. So those quotes could sound alarming or like she's advocating for the reversal of Brown versus the Board of Education. But the way I interpret it is that although these like super precedent laws, as she calls them, might not completely align with originalism, they're necessary and she thinks it would be wrong to undo them. So while Amy subscribes to originalism as a concept, she understands that certain laws are an exception. However, when asked whether she would describe any of the landmark LGBT rights decisions as super precedents, Amy tried to claim that she had not spent enough time analyzing if any particular case qualifies as a super precedent. So basically a non-answer. The Lambda Legal Group argued that her response was kind of BS, 
in my words, not theirs, since Amy has written 200 pages on the examination of how originalist justices can correct the constitutional error created by non-originalist precedent. So basically, she, her a lot of her career so far has been writing these academic articles, studying originalism, and then all of a sudden she just doesn't know if she considers LGBT laws a, like a super precedent. Lambda Legal's letter also expressed concern about Amy's involvement with the Alliance Defending Freedom, or the ADF. Since 2011, Amy has been a paid speaker at least five times at the Blackstone Legal Fellowship, which is a summer program established to inspire, quote, a distinctly Christian worldview in every area of law. It was founded to show students, quote, how God can use them as judges, law professors, and practicing attorneys to help keep the door open for the spread of the gospel in America, end quote. The Blackstone program that Amy spoke at is run by ADF, a legal advocacy group whose founding leader has questioned the so-called separation of church and state. Oh, boy. Okay. So now it's concerning that Amy is tied to this group because the ADF has been at the forefront of the fight against legal cases for the LGBT plus community in the United States. The organization argued against marriage equality, employment discrimination protections, and transgender bathroom access. And they're the organization that took the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which is the one where the baker refused to serve a same-sex couple over religious objections, like they didn't want to make their wedding cake or something. And they're the group that took this case to the Supreme Court. And the group is so extreme that it has even been designated as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Amy tried to defend her decision to speak by insisting that she had not vetted the group, which, if it were true, is troubling in itself. And it kind of reminds me of when Thomas Clarence was like, I didn't know how to fill out the financial form. Like, okay. Um, And then she tried to backtrack and elaborate that she, quote, was generally aware that the program supported a traditional view of marriage, but she didn't inquire into whether the ADF was working to end same-sex marriage or recriminalize homosexuality. She then seemingly dismissed the idea that the ADF is an anti-LGBT group, claiming that its beliefs were just a matter of public controversy. Along with all of these questions about her religious views and all the other controversy during her hearing in 2017, a man named Kevin Connolly came forward with his concerns about Amy and her involvement in a group called People of Praise. Kevin Connolly went to the New York Times with a story, and it was the first time that Amy's involvement with People of Praise became publicly known. After the Times article was published, articles sprung up all over about people of praise and Amy's potential involvement. What was it? Who was in the group? Was Amy part of a cult? I mean, this one story really blasted this small religious group into the spotlight. In an interview with The Guardian, Kevin said that he went to the Times because he thought it was important for the public to be aware of Amy's affiliation with People of Praise. He told The Guardian in 2020, Growing up in the People of Praise, I knew that they held beliefs that would be extremist to the vast majority of practicing Catholics, including on gay rights and women's rights. I looked at the number of people living in those states covered by the Seventh Circuit Court and then projected those numbers over a lifetime appointment. It was well into the tens of millions. That's when I brought the story to the New York Times in 2017. As a Supreme Court justice now, her extreme views may affect upwards of half a billion Americans in her lifetime. So who is this Kevin Connolly guy? Who are the people of praise? And why is Kevin so concerned about Amy's involvement with them? And we're going to digress a little bit from Amy's pathway in the court system and talk about people of praise, which is the aforementioned 
potential cult? Um, I'll let you guys decide. So People of Praise was founded in 1971 by Kevin Ranigan and Paul DeSellis in South Bend, Indiana. The South Bend-based group has about 1,700 members throughout 22 cities across the United States, Canada, and the Caribbean. Members are mostly Catholic, but the group is open to all Christians as long as they're baptized and believe in the Nicene Creed which is some other religious thing. I'm so sorry. Like, listen, I'm not religious. I tried my best in this episode. And first of all, I really don't want to be offensive to anybody that's religious. I think religion can be really beautiful. And I also think it can be really problematic. So that being said, People of Praise describes themselves as a, quote, charismatic Christian community. And members have entered into a covenant commitment to live together. The covenant reads as follows. Therefore, we covenant ourselves to live our lives together in Christ our Lord by the power of His Spirit. We agree to be a basic Christian community to find within our fellowship the essential core of our life in the Spirit, in worship and the sacraments, spiritual and moral guidance, service, and apostolic activity. We agree to obey the direction of the Holy Spirit manifested in and throughout these ministries in a full harmony with the church. And it goes on a bit more, but that's you get the gist. Many sources describe people of praise as... More like not extremist, but I guess the best way to describe it is like more conservative than the mainstream Catholic church, which I think says something because I think even a lot of religious people consider Catholicism more extreme, you know? So the group regularly attends hours long private prayer meetings and believes in speaking in tongues and exorcisms. And one thing that the group is clear on is that people of praise is not a church. They're just a community of like-minded religious people. They actually have a legal status as a 501c3, a nonprofit tax exempt organization. Members attend their own churches that aren't affiliated with People of Praise, as well as take part in the prayer meetings and other events held by People of Praise. So just a lot. Like, I imagine being a part of this community means dedicating a large portion of your time to religious activities. Communal living is encouraged, and oftentimes single individuals will live with married couples and families so that they can be exposed to good examples of what a relationship should look like according to their faith. Resource pooling is also encouraged, and members are expected to contribute about 5% of their earnings to the People of Praise. People of Praise, I don't think to anybody's surprise, opposes same-sex marriage, but they also live by traditional gender roles, which I guess kind of go hand in hand. We know from former member statements and official People of Praise documents that the community is led by men who teach members to run their families according to their interpretation of biblical views of gender roles. One former member said, quote, women were homemakers. They were there to support their husbands. My dad was the head of the household and the decision maker. Which, okay, you know, I guess also that's not that uncommon, maybe a little outdated in today's world. But like I said before, like this is a stay at home mom stand podcast, like running a household is so much work. And I think a lot of times it makes sense if one parent is able to stay home and look after the kids and make meals and everything It like from an economic standpoint, it makes the most sense. Like unpaid labor is still labor. And I think a lot of times stay-at-home moms even end up working longer hours than their co-parts. So, you know, some to some people, it might sound outdated or like not feminist for a woman to say she's a homemaker, but that's not really the problem in my opinion. Like, I think the problem is expecting a woman to be the homemaker if that's not her choice for herself or it's something that she's kind of being forced into by others' expectations. Another person who was raised in the community said she was instructed by elders not to emasculate her peers by getting the better of them in conversation. She said, quote, 
I was made aware of the difference from a young age. I was aware that I would have been better if I had been born a boy, which so there you go. Like that's where it becomes problematic. Circling back around to the structure of the group, members are typically assigned a head to give them spiritual leadership and guidance on life matters such as buying a car or finding a romantic partner. I think, again, this is where the group kind of like tiptoes into potential cultsiness, you know, and I know I said that I would let you guys make your own decisions, but I'm just going to throw in my two cents like wherever I can. So for me, the things screaming cult right now are like the power hierarchy, the fact that you're expected to talk to your like head about buying a car, which I think is like a pretty personal decision. And like, I'm not sure how buying a car relates to like religious leadership or needing religious guidance. And then also like the expectation of financial contribution, co-living, you know, like they're all in one area that makes it harder to leave. I don't know. So I think there's a few red flags on the terms of like, is this a cult or not? This next part is basically quoted from the Washington Post, and it says that younger men and women are led by older members of the same sex, according to former members, but husbands typically take over as heads for their wives following marriage. Men's headship of their wives and the male-dominated governance of the community has been the basis of accusations that people of praise is built on the sexist expectation that women defer to men. So People of Praise also has their own internal magazine that they, you know, distribute amongst members called Vine and Branches. And in a summer 2015 issue, it featured an article titled Holiness in Marriage. Now, this article was based on a talk given to women in the community in the 1980s by Jean DeSellis, wife of co-founder Paul DeSellis. In the speech, Jean said, quote, make it a joy for him to head you. It is important for you to verbalize your commitment to submission. Tell him what you think about things, make your input, but let him make the decisions and support them once they are made. So, you know, maybe not the most progressive ideas about (laughs) women's opinions on if they matter. I don't know. So the Washington Post obtained a copy of the 2010 People of Praise directory, which states that Amy Coney Barrett held the title of Handmaid, a leadership position for women in the community. And the title of Handmaid was adopted by People of Praise in reference to the biblical description of Mary as the handmaid of the Lord. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, that the term sounds awfully familiar and rather dystopian, don't worry, because the group replaced the title of Handmaids with Women Leaders in 2017. Spokesperson Sean Connolly, who's actually the brother of Kevin Connolly, the man who originally brought the story to the New York Times, said that the title was dropped out of recognition that its meaning had shifted dramatically in our culture in recent years, which is thanks to the release of The Handmaid's Tale in 2017, the TV series based on Margaret Atwood's dystopian 1985 novel. And there's a rumor that Atwood's novel was actually inspired by the people of praise, but it's technically not true. Atwood said herself that she was inspired by a different but similar group. So in 2010, Amy was one of the three handmaids in the South Bend Branch's Northwest area. She and the other handmaids were overseen by the branch's principal handmaid. Former members said that while the handmaid role was still like a leadership position and like slightly elevated from being just a regular member, the role didn't carry the authority equivalent to positions held by men in the group's formal hierarchy. The community, like I said, is led by an overall coordinator and a board of governors who are all men, and they oversee coordinators of each branch across the country who in turn oversee coordinators of areas within the branches. 
And Amy's not the first in her family to be involved in People of Praise's leadership branch either. Her mother, Linda Coney, served in the New Orleans branch as a handmaid, and her father, Michael Coney, led that branch as principal coordinator and sat on the national group's all-male board of governors. And remember how I mentioned co-living? So while in law school, Amy lived at the South Bend home of People of Praise's influential co-founder, Kevin Rannigan, and his wife, Dorothy. So the point is that this isn't just like a fleeting or coincidental involvement that Amy had with People of Praise. Even though she has refused publicly to confirm that she's affiliated with People of Praise and People of Praise has refused to confirm if she's a member, records show that she was living full-time with the founders for at least a couple of years while she was in law school, apparently to learn how the ideal marriage should be. So, you know, it's just kind of annoying that she won't say that she's in the group because clearly there's some ties. So a former founding member, Adrian Reimers, wrote a book about his experience in People of Praise called Not Reliable Guides, where he recounts how a married woman in People of Praise is expected to always reflect the fact that she is under her husband's authority. Quote, this goes beyond an acknowledgement that the husband is head of the home or head of the family. He is, in fact, her personal pastoral head. Whatever she does requires at least his tacit approval. On the flip side, the other co-founder, Kevin Ranigan, is quoted saying, the wife, for her part, is called to submit to her husband, not as a slave, but as a companion. And he stressed that there was no room here for domination, oppression, or of thinking of her as less than a full and free human person. Kevin Ranigan, however, was described in a sworn affidavit filed in the 1990s as exerting almost total control over one of the group's female members, including making all decisions about her finances and dating relationships. And we'll get in we'll get more into this accusation later. In addition, a leaked video of a recent private People of Praise event for its 50th anniversary shows Dorothy Ranigan, the founder's wife, explaining how some female followers cried intensely in reaction to the group's early teachings on headship and the roles of men and women. In the video, Dorothy said that in the initial years of the covenant in the 1990s, quote, some of the women who are still in my women's group, as a matter of fact, were wearing sunglasses all the time because they were always crying and would have to hold on to their chairs every time someone's started teaching because what are we going to hear this time? She then added as the audience and her interviewer laughed for some reason, but it all worked out in the end. When asked about this video later, she said that it was just like an inside joke and that everybody in the room understood what she was saying. But like, I don't think that like a normal reaction to the requirements of your faith is like crying all the time and like holding onto a chair because you just like hate so much what you're hearing or not not hate it but like clearly it was getting these women down and like I just don't think that that's how you should react to something that you're hearing that you agree with. So that same former founding member Adrian wrote a letter to Bishop William McManus in 1985, along with his wife, Marie, and they wrote that the people of praise leaders were taking the group in a way that deviates from sound Catholic teaching and practice and which is, in fact, harmful to people. The letter mentioned that leaders actually told some people of praise members not to take problems and questions to priests and confessional and that Adrian was told it was unwise to seek counsel and advice from priests. So it's kind of seeming like there's a little more than religious extremism going 
going on here. Like if you're being told not to participate in, you know, the rituals of your religion. And remember, Adrian was a founding member. So I'm thinking People of Praise must have really taken a turn from its original goals or like the original idea for a founding member to turn against it so entirely. In 1991, another former member, John Ferrone, wrote to ask another bishop, John Darcy, to, quote, deal with the community, saying that People of Praise does, quote, not represent most of the normal people involved in renewal and that the power leaders sought over others has corrupted any initial desire to boost the Catholic Church. And it's not clear if the Catholic clergy ever did anything in connection with these complaints. And when asked for comments, leaders of the church declined except to say that people of praise is not part of the church and hence they have no jurisdiction over them. But I still think it says something that like Catholicism is kind of seen as one of those more intense denominations, you know, at least in the United States. And a lot of the Catholic ex-members who are still Catholic, by the way, like they're saying the people of praise is too much and like doesn't accurately represent Catholicism. It's just really interesting to me. And in response to the accusation that the group is trying to exert too much power over their members, like a cult, the spokesperson Sean Connolly said that every People of Praise member is responsible for his or her own actions. Quote, in the People of Praise, we live by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which recognizes that men and women share a fundamental equality as bearers of God's image and sons and daughters of God. We value independent thinking and teach it in our schools. So at this point, it's kind of like, yeah, some people might not agree with People of Praise's approach, but at the end of the day, they're practicing their religion the way that they see fit, as is their legal right. And they say that if former members want to leave, they can and no one's stopping them. And, you know, again, like they're not actually hurting anyone, but we're not done yet. So in his last statement that I just read, Sean Connolly mentioned that they teach independent thinking in their schools. And we're going to talk about that a little. So the Trinity schools were founded by the People of Praise in 1981 and have three locations, South Bend, Indiana, Falls Church, Virginia, and Egan, Minnesota. The website states that, quote, Trinity students, the majority of whom are not members of People of Praise, learn to ask questions, engage in spirited dialogue, and draw their own reasoned conclusions while pursuing the love of learning for its own sake. Now, Amy has willingly disclosed that she served on the board for Trinity Schools, Inc. for almost three years, starting in 2015, even though she won't say she's involved with People of Praise. So that is something, you know, concrete that ties her to People of Praise, even if you think that her involvement is again, like under circumstance or, you know, just a conspiracy or something, fake news, whatever. I don't know. So unsurprisingly, these Trinity schools are explicitly anti-LGBT. And now we're going to go into kind of some testimonials and experiences from former students of these schools. So the Associated Press interviewed Tom Henry, who served as a student ambassador giving tours to prospective families during his senior year at the Trinity School in Egan, Minnesota. This was during the time that Amy was an active member of the board. In early 2017, a lesbian parent asked Tom whether Trinity was open to gay people and expressed concern about how her child would be treated. Henry, who is gay himself, said he didn't know what to say because he had been instructed not to answer questions about people of prey or Trinity's politics. The next day, Tom asked the school's headmaster, John Balsbaugh, how he should have answered, and Balsbaugh pulled out a document from his desk drawer that condemned gay marriage. He explained it was a new policy from People of Praise that was going into the school handbook. Tom said, quote, he looked me right in the eye and said, the next time that happens, you tell them they would not be welcome here. 
He said to me that trans families, gay families, gay students, trans students would not feel welcome at Trinity schools. And Tom quit the student ambassadors the next day. (laughs) Bowsbaugh, who has since been promoted to president of Trinity Schools, Inc., says that his recollection of the conversation differs considerably, but declined to give details when pressed by the Associated Press. He said it's likely that he shared the school's guidelines that at the time had long been published in the parent handbook. Indeed, a 2018 to 2019 enrollment agreement from the school says, quote, the only proper place for human sexual activity is marriage, where marriage is a legal and committed relationship between one man and one woman. It goes on to say that activities such as fornication, pornography, adultery, and homosexual acts, and advocating or modeling any of these behaviors are at odds with the school's core beliefs. So pretty much like as clear as you can get. (laughs) In 2014, the year before Amy joined the board, the school's trustees voted to limit admissions to the children of legally married couples or single parents because at the time, gay marriage was not legal in Indiana or Virginia. So, you know, basically trying to exclude the children of gay people. The wording was changed slightly after the 2015 Supreme Court ruling that effectively legalized same-sex marriage nationwide, though it still explicitly opposes LGBT relationships. It goes further than the students, too. A 2014 to 2015 faculty employment agreement states that blatant sexual immorality, for example, fornication, adultery, and homosexual acts, etc., has no place in the culture of Trinity schools. And several people told the Associated Press that they were unaware of any openly gay employees and said it was understood that they were not welcome. One gay man did speak with the condition of anonymity for fear of being ousted from his position at the school. And Balsbaugh, the president of Trinity Schools, said the reasons for these policies, quote, was not any desire to judge or punish, but to avoid potential confusion for our students regarding our consistent position that sexual activity is meant to be only within marriage, understood as the union of one man and one woman. Which I noticed in my research, and like you're going to hear this a lot, so I apologize, that instead of people saying that they don't accept gay people or like admitting that they're homophobic, they'll give this just really annoying explanation that they just believe marriage is between one man and one woman. Like, just say what you mean. You're not making yourself look any better. And when Ballspot was asked directly whether children of gay couples would be admitted, he didn't answer. Another former Trinity student, Andrea Turpin King, transferred to the South Bend School in 1990. So we're kind of like moving backwards in time. And it was the middle of her seventh grade year after her father was struck and killed by a drunken driver after leaving a well-known gay bar. Her mother hoped she could get a fresh start after she was bullied at another school, and the teachers at Trinity were told about what had happened with her father. Andrea recalled that during ninth grade, one of her teachers told the class that all gay people go to hell. Andrea remembers, quote, when she said that, all I could picture was my dad's face, and all I could think about was how much I missed his hugs. And so I said, I don't think that's true. And she said that I was going to hell too. So, I mean, a little extreme to tell a ninth grader that their father is in hell and they're going to hell too, which I think is probably the cause of some religious trauma. (laughs) So hopefully she's doing all right. In the same interview, she said, it felt like a request for me to disavow my father's humanity, even in death, and I couldn't do that. And while I personally think that the Trinity School's beliefs about gay marriage and sexual orientation are disgusting and I don't agree with them, private schools have a lot more legal protection than public schools, so legally they're within their rights to express that they don't agree with LGBT students. And, you know, they cover their asses with their vague language and non-answers about if they actually admit LGBT students or not. So... That's the school that Amy served on the board for for almost three years. And in terms of the actual people of praise, their ideas about the queer community 
are pretty much the same. Shockingly, I'm sure the spokesperson, Sean Connolly, gave the same answer about marriages between one man and one woman when asked if gay people would be welcome in People of Praise. According to former members, members who admit to having gay sex are expelled from the group. Apparently, they hold the belief that same-sex attraction isn't a sin, but acting on it is. So in a 2018 interview, the group's current head, Craig Lent, said that People of Praise would end the membership of a person who discloses gay sex or any ongoing, deliberate, unrepentant wrongdoing. And this apparently doesn't apply to child abusers. In June of 2021, four victims of alleged sexual or physical abuse in the People of Praise published an open letter in the South Bend Tribune calling for reforms within the faith group. They suggested reforms like public acknowledgement that there had been a, quote, systematic failure to protect People of Praise children from abuse, public naming of all individuals who had been credibly accused of abuse or concealing abuse within People of Praise or its schools, placing an equal number of women in the highest leadership positions in the group, and giving them an equal vote in all of the group's decisions. The letter noted that the Catholic Church has publicly named individuals who have been credibly accused of abuse and was, I think, hoping to see the same types of accountability and reform for members of People of Praise. Kevin Connolly, the one who originally brought Amy's involvement with People of Praise to light, was one of the four authors of the open letter sent to the South Bend Tribune. Connolly told the Washington Post in 2021 that his father, who was then a member of People of Praise, was violent and once kicked him in the face when he was 10, leaving him with a black eye. Connolly came forward, he said, after he heard of several other incidents of physical abuse among his friends growing up. Neither Connolly's father nor his brother responded to the Post's questions at the time of the article. And these aren't the only instances of alleged child abuse. So remember near the beginning, I mentioned a sworn affidavit that described the founder, Kevin Rannigan, as exerting total control over at least one female member of People of Praise. This affidavit was part of a 1993 proceeding when Cynthia Karnick, which is no longer her name, said that she didn't want her five children to have visitation with their father, John Roger Karnick, in the Rannigan household or in their presence. It sounds like at the time, the father, John, was in People of Praise and Cynthia was a former member. And they could visit the father as long as they weren't brought to the Rannigan household or, you know, were around the Rannigans at all. And Cynthia stated in the documents that she didn't want her children to be around the Rannigans when visiting their father because she didn't think it was in her children's best interest. In the affidavit, Cynthia said she had witnessed Dorothy Rannigan tie the arms and legs of two of the Rannigans' daughters, who were three and five at the time, to their crib with a necktie. So yeah, homosexuality is just like evil and it's going to get you kicked out, but apparently tying your three-year-old to a crib is fine. Cynthia also said that the Rannigans allegedly practiced sexual displays in front of their children and other adults, such as Dorothy Rannigan lying with her clothes on and, quote, rocking on top of Kevin Rannigan in their TV room. For what it's worth, the Rannigans' six children, now adults, gave a statement denying that any abuse or inappropriate behavior occurred. In another affidavit that supported Cynthia's statements, a woman named Colette Humphrey said that she had lived with Kevin and Dorothy Rannigan from 1973 to 1978 when she was a member of the People of Praise and confirmed that she had witnessed incidents of inappropriate sexual expression. Colette also said, quote, when I was part of the People of Praise, I was in full life submission to Kevin Rannigan under full obedience to him, and he exercised this authority over most areas of my life. For example, we were, quote, in common financially, which meant that I had to hand over my paycheck to Kevin Rannigan, and he would decide on how that paycheck would be used. Kevin Rannigan controlled my dating relationships, deciding who and when I should date. So again, like, these are the, the statements that make me think that something is not... <laughs> 
Something's not right in this group. And remember that Cynthia and Colette are not the only women to have lived in the household. Like by their own admission, the Rannigans have hosted dozens of people in their home. So who knows who else has been subjected to this kind of treatment? And you know, People of Praise's spokesperson always says that the members are free to make their own decisions and free to leave the community if they want. But like, how are you supposed to leave the community if you don't have your paycheck? Like if you don't have any money and you're living in the founder's house. It's just these layers of control within the group that really make me lean towards cult. In light of Amy's nomination to the Seventh Circuit, another woman, Sarah Mitchell Cool, a 48-year-old former member who grew up in the community, decided to send an email to Craig Lent, the current head of People of Praise, who also works as a professor at Notre Dame. In the email, Cool claimed that she had been sexually abused decades earlier by a household member, a male member of the community who had lived with the Mitchell family as part of the group's communal living practices. And this is where it gets pretty bad. So after her abuser admitted to her father that he had been molested, Testing cool the daughter the abuser was moved to another household and eventually had a marriage arranged for him so again like having gay sex sure you're out but abusing a four-year-old child she was only four years old at the time like that's all kept hush hush and he's just moved around and like married off and now it's not a problem anymore it's just really sick so cool said in her email to craig lent Quote, I have struggled for years on whether to hold people of praise accountable for what they knew, when they knew it, and their attempt to hide and cover up. Like the Catholic Church, who covered up and moved priests around, people of praise has had a history of these same behaviors. And Cool has letters dating back to the late 1980s and early 1990s that substantiate her claims of abuse and attempts by her parents to address the issue with senior leaders of People of Praise. The documents include references to a psychological evaluation of the alleged abuser and confirmation that he did abuse her. The documents also revealed that there were additional victims and that other minors were at risk, which is, again, just just sickening. It makes me sick. Years later, when Cool sought to discuss the issue with her handmaid, she said that she was discouraged from talking about it. Cool said, quote, she told me not to talk about it with anyone because it could hurt the reputation of the community. Weeks later, Craig Lent responded to her email and said, I am just reaching out to you to let you know that we take this matter very seriously. We very much want to look into this. To that end, we have contracted with Diane Doolittle of Quinn Emanuel, who specializes in exactly this sort of investigation. This took some time to arrange. I want to stress that although she is a lawyer, her role is not to defend people of praise, but rather she is very much in the role of an independent investigator. We thought that better than trying to investigate it directly ourselves. We want to know the truth of the matter. She will be talking to other people as well. So let's talk about this lawyer and their independent investigation. Doolittle's online bio states that she's a Silicon Valley-based trial lawyer who is involved in high-stakes, complex commercial, intellectual property, and white-collar cases. She is also listed as having been engaged in sensitive hashtag MeToo cases, including by conducting corporate internal investigations. The firm she works at, Quinn Emanuel, coincidentally employs William Burke, who's a friend of Brett Kavanaugh and the lawyer responsible for culling Kavanaugh's documents before his own Senate hearing. So the investigation was completed in 2021, but its findings were not released to the public nor to the alleged victims. So I don't know what good that does. It just kind of another slap to the face, like people of praise saying, yeah, we'll look into it. And then when they get asked what they found out, they don't even give you an answer either way. And it makes me think that they probably did find something. Otherwise, why wouldn't they release the documents? Ugh, just 
so frustrating. My heart definitely goes out to the victims who had to revisit their trauma for this, like, quote unquote, investigation, only to have it lead to nothing, which, like, just must be so frustrating for them. So shifting back to Amy and her involvement with the group, remember that Amy has never confirmed that she's involved with People of Praise, and People of Praise has also refused to confirm her membership, despite her records as a handmaid and her time spent living with the Rannigan founding family during law school. In fact, People of Praise even went so far as to remove information from their website that included Amy's name and photograph, which is sketchy. According to a post-review of versions of the site from the Internet Archive, links to at least 10 issues of the magazine Vine and Branches that included mentions of Amy or members of her family were removed from the site during the first half of 2017. And remember, Amy was nominated by Trump to serve on the Seventh Court or the Seventh Circuit in May of 2017. So coincidence? I think not. Issues of the magazine that disappeared from the site included announcements of the births of some of Amy's children and articles that mentioned relatives of Amy and her husband, Jesse. The section of the People of Praise website that for years featured a gallery to links of full issues of the magazine dating back 14 years was removed from the site altogether soon after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, right before Amy was nominated to the Supreme Court. Sean Connolly, who remember is the the spokesperson for People of Praise said the changes to the website were made after discussions with members and non-members raised privacy concerns with the heightened media attention, which like, okay, it's fair, I guess. But if you're such an innocent group, why not come forward with your membership? Why go to such lengths to hide proof that you're involved with them? I just think it's really fishy that Amy has refused to admit her involvement with People of Praise since clearly she and her entire family are deeply involved. I mean, birth announcements of your children, like, her husband's family is also mentioned in these articles. Like, the cat's out of the bag. Like, there's no doubt that Amy is involved with this group, which has been described as extreme by multiple former members. Like, just really sketchy if you ask me. And this information is not what I expected to find when I started researching Amy. Like, like I said before, I didn't know a lot about her before this. And I know that this episode kind of had a big diversion talking about people of praise, but I just thought it was so interesting and the wrongdoings of the group and the information that I found, I think just really deserves to be out there in the public in the same discussion as Amy, because I've said it before. I mean, we're only human and the way that you grow up and the beliefs that you're taught and the communities that you live in have a huge impact on your beliefs and the way that you reason and how your, you know, brain and your logic works. And I also want to express that I'm not questioning her neutrality because she's Catholic or religious, because I'm pretty sure most people in public office are religious to some extent, but the community that she was raised in is, and probably is still involved in, goes way further than just belonging to a church. Like, in my opinion, like I said, it's basically a cult, and I think it's bananas to say that being involved in that community and people of praise and having those extreme beliefs around you while you're growing up isn't going to influence your legal opinions. With that being said, we're mostly ending our discussion of People of Praise, but before we moved on, I wanted to end with a statement from a former member who called herself Esther. Esther said, quote, the basic premise of everything at People of Praise was that the devil controlled everything outside the community and that you were walking out from under the umbrella of protection if you ever left. I was okay with it being in a tiny little corner of Indiana because a lot of weird stuff happens in tiny little corners in this country, but it's just unfathomable to me. I can't even explain just how unfathomable it is that you would have a Supreme Court justice who is a card-carrying member of this community. 
So I think that sums it up pretty well, because regardless, all of this is to say that Amy was confirmed to serve on the Seventh Circuit in 2017. A few years later, on September 18th, 2020, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at the age of 87. Rest in peace. Just a week later, on September 26th, Trump nominated Amy to succeed Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I'm just going to say RBG, on the Supreme Court. Her nomination was controversial because the 2020 presidential election was only 38 days away, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell led a huge push to nominate Amy while Trump was still president and Republicans had the majority in the Senate. Now, this was widely contested because just four years earlier, McConnell himself had refused to hold a hearing for President Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. And Garland was nominated in March of 2016, eight months away from the election. But McConnell refused to even hold a hearing because he said the next president should pick the nominee. That to fill a vacancy in an election year is not right. He said, quote, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. It is a president's constitutional right to nominate a Supreme Court justice, and it is the Senate's constitutional right to act as a check on the president and withhold its consent. Fast forward four years, 38 days before the 2020 election, and McConnell rushes to fill RBGC with Amy, which is just, oh, it makes me so mad if you couldn't tell. Just so hypocritical all, all around. And I know it's hard to remember, but there was a little something called the COVID-19 pandemic happening at the time also. So the, <laughs> the LCCR, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, wrote in their statement opposing Amy's nomination, quote, it is shameful that at a time when more than 200,000 Americans have lost their lives to COVID-19 and the need for healthcare access is more acute than ever, the Senate has chosen to prioritize filling the Supreme Court vacancy with a nominee hostile to healthcare access over passing legislation to aid an ailing nation. And remember, in 2017, Amy called the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. So there's a lot going on during her nomination. Uh, during her confirmation hearing, Amy was again questioned on her views regarding the LGBT plus community. She said, I have no agenda and I do want to be clear that I have never discriminated on a basis of sexual preference and would not ever discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. And her use of the phrase sexual preference instead of sexual orientation or, you know, anything else raised some alarm on the left since the phrase indicates that sexuality is a choice or a preference. I feel like I said that so many times in the past 20 seconds, but but the phrase is widely disproved of by the LGBT plus community. And after some Democratic senators questioned her use of the term, Amy apologized and said that she did not mean any offense or to make any statements by that. However, during the hearing, she also repeatedly refused to say whether she agreed with the high court's ruling in Obergefell versus Hodges, the landmark decision in 2015 that legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. Amy stressed that she did not intend to signal any opinion one way or another. However, she already did signal one way or another in a talk she gave in November 2016. In this speech, she appeared to be critical of Obergefell versus Hodges and supportive of the dissent, which said marriage equality should be determined on a state-by-state -state basis. According to Amy, the Obergefell dissent said that those who want same-sex marriage, you have every right to lobby in state legislatures to make that happen, but the dissent's view was that it wasn't right for the court to decide. So I think 
Obergefell and what we're talking about for the future of the court is really a who decides question. So basically, she was saying that the states should decide, not the federal courts. And then later in the speech, when asked about the impact of the upcoming presidential election on the courts, you know, right before Trump got elected. So she said, quote, it is a consequential moment. And the who decides question, just as a personal matter, is really important to me. And so I guess I worry a lot about the who decides question about our decisions and my voice kind of getting taken away depending on what happens. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where I go with that. So basically saying that her right to choose if other people should be married is going to be taken away. Okay. The LCCR, I think, put it best when they said, quote, but no one can decide to deny people their fundamental human rights because we have a constitution that protects everyone. A justice who does not recognize this would put LGBTQ people at the mercy of those who have long targeted them for discrimination. During the same 2016 speech, Amy also made critical statements about a case that had come before the Supreme Court about whether a transgender student should be permitted to use the restroom that correlated with his gender identity. Amy said the decision seemed to strain the text of the statute to say that Title IV demands transgender protections. She said that if policymakers want to add gender identity to Title IV, they should amend the statute. However, in her hearings, she said if confirmed, she would keep an open mind about how she might rule in any future cases. And we all know how that turned out. Circling around to her decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, Amy has long been in opposition to reproductive rights. In 2006, she signed off on an advertisement published by the St. Joseph County Right to Life Group, an extreme anti-choice organization in South Bend, Indiana. The ad called for the overturning of Roe versus Wade, calling the decision barbaric and a raw exercise of judicial power. The ad was signed by Amy and her husband Jesse and stated that life begins at fertilization and claims that they oppose the use of abortion as a, quote, method of birth control. Like, okay, but are you also against providing comprehensive sex education in schools and providing free contraceptives or health insurance that covers contraceptives so that people actually have access to birth control? Like, no, you're not. It's just so hypocritical. In 2012, Amy also signed a letter entitled Unacceptable that protested the Obama administration's effort to create a compromise on the Affordable Care Act's requirement to provide comprehensive birth control coverage. The compromise permitted eligible employers and schools to opt out of covering birth control. So like if they said my religion doesn't agree with that, they had the option to opt out. But the compromise was that the Affordable Care Act would still ensure that workers and students had access to coverage of essential care, including birth control. The letter calls the Obama administration morally obtuse and was filled with anti-science beliefs about birth control, including referring to certain methods as abortion-inducing drugs and embryo-destroying. So... Not great. Not a great look. In another 2013 article, Amy rationalized the decision to overturn precedents, claiming a judge's responsibility to the Constitution is greater than their responsibility to precedents they feel are in conflict with the Constitution. And in the same article, she wrote that Roe versus Wade could not be considered on the super precedent list because the public controversy about Roe versus Wade has never abated. So basically, <laughs> since abortion is still a controversial topic, it shouldn't be seen as a concrete law. Like, Yikes. According to Michael Gerhardt, a University of North Carolina law professor whose works are cited extensively in Amy's own writings, her views on overturning precedent are radical and if adopted by four other justices, quote, will produce chaos and instability in constitutional law. 
So even a scholar that Amy herself quotes a lot in her writing is calling Amy too radical, which I think is really interesting. During her time on the Seventh Circuit bench, Amy repeatedly voted in opposition to abortion access in Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky versus Box. She voted to rehear a case involving abortion restriction that had already been deemed unconstitutional. So the case that she voted to rehear had blocked an Indiana law that would require minors to notify their parents before an abortion, even if a judge already found the minor mature enough to make the decision alone. The court that originally blocked the law said that requiring parental notification, quote, carries with it the threat of domestic abuse, intimidation, coercion, and actual physical obstruction. But Amy voted to rehear the case because the decision had been made before the law actually went into effect. Technically, she didn't vote to overhear the case because she thought it was wrong, but she voted because she said legally they should have waited for the law to go into effect before challenging it. But the whole thing is that challenging the law before it goes into effect is really common, especially in abortion rights cases, because waiting until it goes into effect can sometimes irreparably damage access to abortion. Despite Amy's long controversial history in relation to LGBT and reproductive rights, she was elected to the Supreme Court on October 6, 2020, days before the presidential election. So the Senate obviously voted mostly along party lines, 52 to 48, with all the Democrats boycotting the vote and one Republican in opposition. Amy was sworn in by Justice Clarence Thomas, who we've already talked about last episode. Amy is only the fifth woman to serve on the court, and her nomination pushed the court to a higher conservative majority of six conservatives versus three liberals when before RBG passed away, it was more even at five to three. So to nobody's surprise, in September 2021, Amy joined the majority in a five to four vote that rejected a petition to block a Texas law that banned abortion after six weeks of presidency. <laughs> presidency? <laughs> After six weeks of pregnancy, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, who we talked about in the last Supreme Court episode, joined her as well as Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, who I will talk about next episode. That leads us to June 2022, when Amy joined with the majority in Dobbs versus Jackson, voting to completely overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. During the oral argument in Dobbs versus Jackson, Amy referenced safe haven laws across the United States, which allow mothers to abandon newborns in designated locations without the risk of punishment. Her reasoning was that even if women are forced to give birth when Roe is overturned, these safe haven laws meant that they won't necessarily be forced into motherhood or forced to become a parent. And while this is true, it just feeds into the, like, in my opinion, faulty reasoning that, like, there's always adoption or, like, you can just abandon a baby at a fire station. Like, don't get an abortion. It's like, how is that any better? Like, I just don't understand the argument, especially when I feel like people advocating for pro-life decisions are not advocating as hard for, like, reforms in the adoption system or, you know, to gun control laws. Like, people who say they're pro-life usually aren't advocating for much reform in those areas. Like, they say that they are, but no, like, what they're going to do is they're going to stand outside of Planned Parenthood with, like, a sign with a inaccurate picture of an abortion. Like, they're not doing that same thing outside of you know, adoption agencies trying to make sure that those systems are better for the 
child who actually does get born. So Amy's argument about the safe haven laws also completely ignores the physical health and risks associated with childbirth, especially when America has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed nations and even higher rate for women of color. So rightfully so, a lot of pro-choice critics criticized Amy's statement, arguing that seeing safe haven laws as a viable replacement for reproductive choice ignored real health risks associated with pregnancy and childbirth and ignored women's rights to bodily autonomy. Barrett's opinion also appears to echo the people of praise culture. And so this part, it gets a little wild. So the people of praise culture emphasizes the importance of childbirth, pregnancy, and the abandonment of autonomy and privacy it supposedly entails as a core part of what it means to be a woman. Dorothy Rannigan, who again is the wife of the founder, described in her early writings that childbearing is, quote, the central reality of womanhood. The child in the womb expands the mother's body, changing its dimensions. As her body yields, so do the borders of privacy and selfishness. Her very existence gives to another. Women who are most admired, Dorothy wrote, are not private persons, but are surrendered and available to care for others. And perhaps the most disturbing quote from Dorothy, pregnancy teaches a woman that others have a claim on her very person for the service of life. Rather than annihilating her, pregnancy makes her a new person, radiant and strong, a mother. And so again, this is where the argument of can you grow up in this community with these beliefs all around you, can you really grow up in that community and maintain neutrality when making decisions about these kinds of laws? And in my opinion, you would Amy can't for sure. Like I just, maybe some people can, but like I said, we're only human. I just think that these quotes from Dorothy really show kind of perfectly how a lot of people consider pregnancy and women's bodies. Like a lot of people feel entitled to make decisions on behalf of women and claim to know what is right for women. When at the end of the day, like it all comes down to choice, like having the choice to make for yourself and not enforcing your choices onto other people. And I think sometimes what gets lost within the choice argument as well is like the right to privacy and the right to having your body as your own private place. Like I think that Dorothy's quote about how as a pregnant woman's body changes, so do the borders of privacy is just really on the nose. Like this whole debate is about what is going on inside a woman's body. And I think a lot of the time, the argument that we forget is that we do have a right to privacy and we have a right to contain what's happening within ourselves. I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but I hope you understand. I guess the one one way I could phrase it that I hear a lot is like, how often do you see people debating on a law that affects men's bodies? You know, like, is there a law that tells a man what they have to do with their body? Like, I don't know. And then people argue, oh, the draft and all of that. But that's just, you know, going off onto different tangents and taking away from like the, the argument at hand. But I just wanted to leave you with those really disturbing quotes <laughs> from Dorothy. Thank you guys for hanging in there with me. This was one of the longest episodes that I wrote. And I know, again, that I did take a little diversion off into the people of praise, but I thought it was so, so interesting. And I hope you guys felt the same. So next episode, we'll be back with the typical white collar crimes. And then the episode after that, I will finish up the Supreme Court justices. 
I wanted to, again, end this episode with some pro-choice places that you can donate or support. There's the Abortion Care Network, who supports independent community-based abortion providers and their allies. Other national organizations are Planned Parenthood, Indigenous Women Rising, and lastly, the National Network of Abortion Funds makes it easy to donate to an array of organizations all over the country. Thank you again for staying with me on this journey. This is Roasting the Rich, and don't forget, if you're against abortions, don't get one. Bye.